0: Welcome to the Colonial Hills Podcast, a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church. We're taking our Bibles together and turning to Isaiah chapter 55. I know that you've already seen the title of the message this evening, and frankly, I'm surprised so many people stayed. So I'm glad to see you here this evening. I think Isaiah 55 is a good place for us to start. Isaiah chapter 55. And we're going to look at verses 8 and 9 together. We're going to be dealing this evening with the theme, Understanding Calvinism, and I'm going to be on this topic for the next several weeks, not because it's something that I find joy in discussing, uh, but something that I think is important for us uh, as a church family to be aware of. Uh, Some who've heard, in fact, how many have heard of Calvinism before? Let's see your hands around here. Yeah, it's pretty much the majority, right? Uh, I think the first time I heard of Calvinism, I was in junior high. My father was pastoring a church. And the church that he was pastoring was uh, heading into a great schism. And the uh, underlying cause of the schism was Calvinism. And people had some very strong opinions. And in my life, I don't think I've met many fellows who are as patient and uh, long-suffering as my father. And so he was walking through that with the church family. And I still remember as a teenager, the angst and the burden that it brought to him in ministry. It's one of the reasons I'm in ministry, I watched my dad go through the fires of seeing a church uh, that wanted to divide. Uh, rather than see the church divide, uh, my father actually resigned, not knowing where we would go. And um, he had no job. When I was a junior in high school, and my sister was a senior in high school, he resigned. And I said, Dad, why did you resign? And he said, I received good counsel years ago that often it's better for a pastor to resign than watch a church split. If somebody else can come in and be a healer here. I'd rather have our family leave and have somebody else come behind and be the blessing of bringing the church together. Well, I wish that somebody would have come and brought that church together. Uh, They did, in fact, uh, uh, ultimately they dissolved. And the reason for their uh, disillusion, I think, uh, as I look back over the years, was uh, there were some who had very, very strong opinions on the topic that I enter into tonight. So I enter in with some fear and trembling, but I enter in also knowing That if we would be wise as a congregation, we need to know uh, what this topic is, how we feel about it, and be well advised scripturally. So we've opened Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55 in verse 8 says, God speaking, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts." The topic, of course, that we approach tonight needs to be handled with care, and it needs to be handled with prayer. Take your Bibles and go with me for just a moment to 1 Timothy chapter 4, 1 Timothy chapter 4. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, the 16th verse, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the 16th verse says, take heed unto thyself and unto the doctrine." New Testament pastors and churches have a responsibility to be well-grounded in doctrine, to take heed to ourselves and to the doctrine and continue in them. For in doing this, thou shalt both save thyself and them that hear thee over the next several weeks. We're going to go down into some pretty deep weeds doctrinally, and I trust it will be an encouragement to us knowing that we're obeying the biblical mandate. But come over to chapter 6 of 1 Timothy, And and hear the the warning that comes with the mandate. In verse 3, 1 Timothy 6 and verse 3, we read, If any man teach otherwise and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine, there it is again, which is according to godliness, he's proud, knowing nothing but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy and strife and railings and evil surmisings, and perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. What you'll discover on any doctrinal discussion is you always walk a precipice, seeking balance, whether it be the doctrine of eschatology or things to come, the doctrine of the church, ecclesiology. Certainly when it comes to the doctrine of soteriology, which is uh, the bedrock of when we talk about Calvinism, we walk a precipice. And to be able to say, thus saith the Lord, and live there without falling off that precipice requires prayer and a great deal of humility, a willingness to say, God's thoughts are not my thoughts, He's higher than my thoughts. And our Lord Jesus Christ explained it this way in John chapter 4 when He said, the Spirit blows where it listeth, It, it goes where it wants to go, you can't tell where it came from and you can't tell where it's going. In other words, he said, there are some things when it comes to the mind of the Spirit and the work of God that are too high for us. When it comes to the doctrines of Calvinism, I think the humble among us will say, these are deep weeds. So, take a big breath tonight, ready? Get your oxygen, you're all set, let's ask the Lord to bless, and for those who are visiting with us this evening, I apologize, this is not our normal Wednesday night but I think it'll be a blessing to you as we go through. So let's ask the Lord to bless. Father, I pray that you'd use this service this evening and this study as we enter into it over the next several weeks to be an encouragement, to help us to know the goodness of your grace and the long suffering that you have toward us, the wonderful mercy that we have in salvation through the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Thank you that there are indeed mysteries that we cannot plummet, Thank you that we can stand amazed, and that even the Apostle Paul would cry out, Great is the mystery of godliness, that God was manifest in the flesh and justified in the Spirit, that he was seen of angels and preached unto the Gentiles, received up into heaven. Lord, these things are mysteries to us. And Lord, one day we trust that as we stand before you at last, we'll give you glory for all of it. Right now, Lord, I pray that you give wisdom as we enter this discussion. And that every person in this room tonight would be bettered for it. And we'll thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. On your outline sheets, we note that one of the most longstanding and divisive of all the theological battles is the battle of the Calvinist versus the Arminian. And we can trace that back to the 16th century. There are those who say, no, no, you can trace that back actually to the 4th century. And I think they're probably right. It was in the fourth century, and we'll talk about this a little bit later on, that Augustine, who became the father of Roman Catholic doctrine, uh, put his positions together, and there was a fellow by the name of Pelagius who countered those positions. And when you study Calvinism and Arminianism, which is the flip side of Calvinism, you'll find that there are echoes that are coming out of the fourth century into the 16th century. Our focus is going to be mostly on the 16th century this evening, And I can already see some people's eyeballs drifting back into their skulls. So let's move on here. Of late, many very popular evangelical authors are brandishing theological words. On the Calvinistic side, there are men who are well known. R.C. Sproul, who recently graduated uh, to heaven, is well known as uh, brandishing, I said words, it should be swords. Uh, R.C. Sproul, um, of course, a very strong opinion on Calvinism. D. James Kennedy, uh, who had the Coral Ridge Presbyterian Church down in Florida for many years and actually wrote Evangelism Explosion, very strong Calvinist and a very much-used man for bringing souls to Christ, both in the church there as well as the impact of that curricula that he put together back in the 60s and 70s. John Piper is very noteworthy today. Piper jokingly says, I'm not a five-point Calvinist, I'm at least a ten-point Calvinist. Uh, Calvinism runs through the blood of John Piper and so John Piper says the doctrines of grace are the warp and woof of the biblical gospel and when he says doctrines of grace for those of you who understand some measure of Calvinism your antenna is going to go up when he says it's the warp and woof of the biblical gospel cherished by so many saints for centuries then there are those on the other side there's a book entitled against Calvinism by Roger Olson that many people have found intriguing. Uh, he is an Armenian. So uh, he is not a Calvinist. And there's a difference, you know, between an Armenian and an Armenian. So an Armenian is a nationality, and an Armenian is a theological position. And so if I mess that up, just forgive me for it and move on, all right? But uh, uh, Roger Olson is against Calvinism, a bold evangelism by uh, Ray Comfort, uh, who is strongly in the Armenian uh, camp. And uh, recently, the Lord called home uh, Dave Hunt. Uh, Dave Hunt did a lot of work uh, specifically on uh, cults and on uh, confusions and prophecy. But he did write a book also to try to clarify some of the issues of Calvinism. Some of you are aware that there are good men on both sides. And I think that's where we need to start. Uh, The folks that we talk about here, at least on this slide, I I expect I'm going to see in heaven. And uh, I'm going to be in some great company. And so when we talk about Calvinism and Arminianism, there needs to be a spirit that says, uh, if they've been fighting over this for 500 years, it's doubtful that I'll, I'll be able to explain every nuance of it. And it's true, I can gain from those who are Calvinists. Jonathan Edwards was a very strong Calvinist. John MacArthur of late has become more and more Calvinistic in, in his teaching. If you've listened to John MacArthur over the years, you'll find that to be true. Uh, when I was in seminary way back, about 40 years ago, uh, I used to drive a public school bus up in St. Paul, Minnesota, and I'd come home at lunch, and I sat down and turned on the radio because I heard this guy, John McCarthur, and I thought, man, this guy's good. And I'd actually take notes on every sermon that he preached as I ate my soup for lunch. My wife was working at the bank, and I had time off between seminary and going out on my bus route and I listen to him every morning. So when I say he's drifted more into Calvinism than he was 40 years ago, I know what I'm talking about. Uh, I heard him 40 years ago, uh, but he's become quite strong on Calvinism. Charles Spurgeon uh, declared himself to be an avowed Calvinist. Now, uh, he also uh, took a stand against limited atonement. Uh, So if you know your Calvinism, uh, you know that the true Calvinist says it's a golden chain, you can't cut any part out. Well, Spurgeon willingly cut that one part out and still declared himself to be a Calvinist, but he was Spurgeon. You know, he can get away with doing what he wants to do. George Mueller uh, would be in the Calvinistic camp, as would George Whitfield, one of the great evangelists that God used for the Great Awakening here in the United States as well as in England. On the Arminian side, you have Charles Finney, who was a revivalist and evangelist in the 1800s. D.L. Moody uh, would fit more on the Arminian side. Again, an evangelist who died in 1899 from Northfield, Massachusetts, John Newton. Uh, you uh, sing his song, Amazing Grace. Uh, he wasn't a Calvinist, but he had been led to Christ uh, through the ministry of George Whitfield. There's some parallels. And by the way, Charles and John Wesley uh, were Arminian in their theology, and they went to school together and formed the Holiness Club uh, when they went to uh, Oxford together and were uh, friends from their youth. And uh, they had some challenging times along the way and part of their challenge was West, the Wesley's became very Arminian and George Whitfield did not. So, these are names on both sides of the spectrum and why would I bring that up? Well, I know this might be hard for you to believe but sometimes people try to pin down where does the pastor stand and they try to pin him down on whom he quotes. Oh, pastor, I heard you quote Spurgeon, you must be a Calvinist. Yeah, you might also hear me quote D. Almoudi. It's not an announcement of a theological position when we quote somebody uh, that has been used of the Lord uh, in years gone by. More than that, some are aware that denominations have split on this topic. Before the worship wars and people divided over uh, styles of music, people used to divide over far more complex uh, questions. And uh, we'll go into some of that complexity this evening, but on the Calvinistic side, Uh, Of course, there would be the Presbyterian church, uh, which uh, would trace its origins back to Calvin uh, via John Knox in Scotland. So, the Presbyterian church would be very Calvinistic. Anything that's a Reformed church would be under the Calvinistic side. My mother grew up in a Swedish covenant church. Uh, That would be on the Calvinist side, the Episcopalians, and some Baptists, and some Bible churches. On the other side, the Arminian side, there are those who are Methodist. That's a Calvinistic uh, denomination, an Arminian denomination, rather. The Nazarenes, the Pentecostals, uh, the Mennonites, some Baptists, and some Bible churches. Now, who did I forget? Any denominations that you say, Pastor, I think that you missed one or two along the way here. Did I forget some? The Catholic Church uh, pretty much traces its roots uh, back before Calvin. (laughs) Remember, Calvin came out in the Reformation uh, but uh, they would go to Augustine, and Augustinism is the precursor to Calvinism. So, yes, the Catholic Church does have a lot of what we would say. That sounds like Calvinism, but it was before Calvin. Okay? Yes. What's that? The Wesleyan. So, the Wesleyan would be Arminian. The Lutheran. Lutheran would be on the Calvinistic side, kind of. But they're, they're closer, actually, especially today, closer to the Catholic Church, even to the Reformed Churches. So yes, it would be on the Calvinistic side of the spectrum. Congregationalists, it will divide, but mainly uh, mainly Calvinistic, the Congregationalist churches. Apostolic church, uh, I would assume the apostolic church would be in the Armenian side. The Amish, um, Armenian side. Yes, the Arminians. The Quakers, no side. Especially the modern-day Quakers, Uh, there's really not a theological grid that can be identified with with Quakerism. Yes, Darlene. Anything Orthodox has its roots with the Catholic, and so you'll hear some things that will sound like you know Augustinianism. So the old Catholic roots, but that they predate the Reformation, so they predate Calvinism. Yeah. So this is this is baseline for a lot of ways for us to understand, especially on one doctrine in particular. And that doctrine is, how do they teach the doctrine of salvation? And so, uh, these are denominations that face off uh, in the different ways. Why is it important? Well, it's become a very important discussion in our day and age. Back in 2009, Time magazine came out with an edition under the heading, 10 Ideas That Are Changing the World Right Now. 2009, 13 years ago. And one of the ideas that was listed among the ten ideas that Time Magazine zeroed in on was an escalation, a new birth, if you will, of Reformed theology. And so there are three words that usually come in a chain together. Reformed theology, which is covenant theology, which is typically Calvinistic theology. Don't worry if you're confused. We've got a couple more weeks to go over it. And you'll learn on this one, it's line upon line and and precept upon precept, here a little bit, there a little bit, and you'll pick up with it. Uh, But this is something that's been sweeping the globe. There was a book that uh, Colin Hansen wrote under the title Young, Restless, and Reformed. He wrote it about 2005, 2010, somewhere in there. Uh, A great explosion of something that I think it's fair to say the world had never seen before. The merger of Reformed and Calvinistic theology with contemporary charismatic church worship. And that had never been merged before. When you think about Calvinism, you're usually thinking about robes and stained glass and a lot of formality. And suddenly you've got Calvinistic doctrine behind steel guitars. And you're like, what happened there? Uh, well, the Young Restless and Reformed movement was grown, has grown the point where there are all kinds of volumes out on the topic of the Reformed resurgence. Simply put, Calvinism's cool again. Uh, Calvinism's become cool. There are people that wear t-shirts that say, Jonathan Edwards is my homeboy, and all kinds of funny ways of expressing themselves. But Calvinism has become, uh, to, to a large degree, cool again. It's become popularized, and it's something that if you're here this evening at Colonial and you've been here a long time, you think... Pastor, do we really need this? From time to time, you'll hear me say, trust me. Trust me. When your young people go out to Christian colleges in particular, and when they come home and you're sitting at the kitchen table going, what are they talking about? You may go back in your mind and say, oh, now I know why Pastor Phelps is talking about this. Because this is an important topic, especially among uh, young Christians in our generation. So let's talk about the origins of this conflict. Now, if you like historic theology, you're going to like the next 15 minutes. If you don't like historical or hysterical theology, you're going to think, why did I come tonight? But we have to start somewhere, so we're going to say, where did this theological battle begin? Who are the main proponents and what does it all mean? Those are important considerations, and so we're going to say that really the origins of the conflict, as we said earlier, can go all the way back to a Roman Catholic monk who had quite an interesting testimony of conversion. So Augustine or Augustine, depending on how you wanna pronounce it, Augustine was a profligate. He was a desperately wicked, wicked man. His mother prayed for him and he had a conversion experience. A brilliant man, He would uh, write many things, and many of the things that Augustine wrote are still available to us, and became foundational to Roman Catholicism. Well, shortly after his writing, some of his followers began to study his writings deeply and began to say, not so sure about some of this, and one of the people who said, time out, not so sure about one of this, was a fellow by the name of Pelagius. So, Augustine's view was no man can take a step toward God unless God haul him in. That's a crass way of saying God has to do all the pulling because mankind is spiritually dead. So, God has to do the work of regeneration. And because you're spiritually dead, you can't even respond. Spiritual stimuli. God has to do it. Pelagius came along and said, Eh, seems like people have some interest at least in spiritual things. And then he went further. Pelagius put forward the view every baby is born without original sin, basically. I'm saying this in layman's terms. And we all do, it's universal, we all choose to sin. But because we're born with some measure of inherent goodness, we can desire after God and seek the Lord even before the Lord's drawing us in. Well, now you've got a challenge, right? You've got one person who's saying, no, it's God's sovereignty that does all the work of salvation. And the other one's saying, I think I can see some, I don't know, I think I see a little human responsibility going on here. Well, you morph that out to the time of the uh, Protestant Reformation And about 100 years after the Protestant Reformation, you have another Roman Catholic, his name is John Calvin. And of course, Calvin becomes the father of Calvinism and the one who's gonna offer a rebuttal to Calvinism is a fellow by the name of Jacobus Arminius, big names. So let's look at Calvin for just a minute. John Calvin, few would deny that John Calvin who lived from 1509 to 1563 was a man of extraordinary intellect and influence. Calvin was born in France. In fact, his given name was Jean Chavin. Jean Chavin, but he really liked Latin. He was really gifted in the languages and in the liberal arts. And so when he went off to college, he changed his name going into college, and he named himself Johannes Calvinus, because it sounded more like Latin, right? So this man who was born, Jean Chavin, became Johannes Calvinus and was educated in Paris. He was fluent in the classics and fluent in the law. He'd been born into a very religious home. In fact, his father uh, was the uh, um, secretary to the Roman Catholic bishop when Calvin was growing up. And so uh, there was a lot of nepotism that went on, especially in um, Roman Catholic circles. Uh, during that time, and one of the greatest positions a person could land for their family would be being involved in, as a churchman, a person in the church, because they had the money. Uh, The church might not have had the power. In fact, there's a story told of one of the Reformers, whether it's apocryphal or, or true, I'm not sure, but a story told about one of the Reformers who had a tour of the Vatican during the times of Luther. And the person who was giving the tour of the Vatican said to the reformer, no longer need we say silver and gold, have we none. And the reformer who was, doing the tu- who was on the tour said, yes, and no longer can you say, rise, take up your bed and walk. In other words, you have all the money, but you don't have any of the power of God. The power of God is dissipated. Well, at the time of Calvin's youth, to be a churchman was to be a person with money, well endowed and being able to be a help to the family. And so it was that... Calvin's father thought that he would come up as a churchman, but Calvin's father had a falling out with a bishop with whom he worked and was eventually excommunicated from the Roman Catholic Church. John Calvin studied for the ministry, but he transferred at that point and began to study law and focus in particular on philosophy. So it seems that Calvin came to a personal knowledge of salvation in 1533. In his preface to his commentary on the Psalms, he says, God by sudden conversion subdued my heart. The specifics of his salvation are pretty vague. That statement that I just read, that God by sudden conversion subdued my heart is the strongest statement on conversion that you'll probably find when reading Calvin. Again, growing up in the Catholic church and the Catholic faith, uh, studying philosophy, uh, studying the liberal arts, a great student of of languages, a brilliant young man. And he's written much. So I've got some of his titles here for you. In 1532, he put out an annotated edition of Seneca's uh, De Clementia*. This was a book that was uh, asking for clemency, specifically for the Lutherans who were battling in the Reformation. And so he had a heart toward uh, the reformers, specifically on the Lutheran side, in 1536, he wrote his Institutia Christiania Religionis, or the Institutes of Christian Religion, most often simply called the Institutes. He's most famous for the Institutes. It's been edited and expanded, written in French, but never really altered by way of its arguments. When he wrote this, the classic work from which Calvinism flows, he'd been saved for three years. He was 26 years old at the time. So his first significant publication happened when he was 22. And that publication of the Institutes, anyone who studies it well, will conclude very heavily relying on Augustine, very heavily relying on Augustinian theology. And so that's why we say this battle has been going on uh, since the 4th century Uh, He also began writing commentaries on various books of the Bible in 1539. His commentaries in their English translation fill 45 substantial volumes. Uh, His commentaries on Romans, Isaiah, John, Genesis, and the Psalms are considered uh, his finest works. In 1563, he wrote The Harmony of Three Gospels. Over 2,000 of his sermons are still available. So if you want to study Calvin, there's a lot for you to study Uh, They're clear, uh, well-written, fairly easy to read. And he was a very forceful person, they say, in the French language. Now, what's the dominating thought of Calvin's theology and Calvin's writing? Anybody want to take a guess at it? If you guess it tonight and get it right, I know that God was behind it. It would be his divine will that you get this. Oh, I heard it. There you go. Kadir said sovereignty. So that's right. The sovereignty of God was his big theme, that God is sovereign. And God is sovereign. But especially on the topic of salvation, for Calvin, that would come under the heading of predestination and election. God is sovereign. And Calvin then would say, God predestined those who would be saved and elected you unto salvation. And we'll talk about that more later. The great influence of John Calvin was in many places, but in 1541 to 1564, he ruled in Geneva. He was called there the Protestant Pope or the Geneva Dictator. And if you've ever seen a statue of a, of a reformer in Europe, I should have put a picture of one up, but often you'll see statues, statues rather with a Bible in one hand and a sword in the other. What does that signify? The union of the church and state. And so the reformers, having come up in the Catholic system, there's still a Vatican, which is still a church state, did not believe in the division of the church and state, so they ruled with the sword, but held that their tenets from God's word gave them the authority to do so. And so that's what John Calvin did there in uh, Geneva, Switzerland and uh, even imposed the death penalty. In fact, sometimes quite cruelly, you you almost hate to begin with this by besmirching people uh, for their lowest ebbs in their life, but when it comes to Calvin, there are those who will say, I can't side with Calvin because he's a murderer. What? If you haven't heard that, it comes from Things like this. Born Miguel Cerveto in Villanova in fifteen eleven, the man known to the world as Michael Servetus discovered the pulmonary circulation of the blood, the passage of the blood from the right chamber of the heart along the pulmonary artery to and through the lungs, its purification thereby aeration, and its return via the pulmonary vein to the left chamber of the heart. He was in some ways, quote, a bit more insane than the average of his time. Announcing to the end of the world, in which, uh, announcing the end of the world in which quote the archangel Michael would lead a holy war against both the papal and Genovese antichrist. Oh wait a minute, the papal antichrist I understand. Now, who's the Genovese antichrist? That would be Calvin. Okay, the Gen- from Geneva, the antichrist of Geneva. So uh, he was speaking out against Calvin. Not a good idea. Servetus titled one of his published works, The Restitution of Christianity. It was a personal affront by the author on the Institutes of Christian Religion, the writings of Calvin. Servetus' persistence is seen in the fact that he wrote at least 30 letters to Calvin, an attention which must have irritated the recipient greatly. On February 13, 1546, Calvin wrote to Farrell, Servetus has just sent me a long volume of his ravings. If I consent, He will come here, but I will not give my word, for should he come, if my authority is of any avail, I will not allow him to get out alive. Servetus made the mistake of passing through Geneva seven years later on his way to Naples, was recognized when he attended church. Some speculate that he attended church in order not to be arrested for non-attendance. But someone saw him through his disguise, notified Calvin, who in turn ordered his arrest. Early in his trial, which would last two months, Calvin wrote again to Farrell, I hope that sentence of death will be passed upon him. The indictment, drawn up by Calvin, who had studied to be a lawyer, contained 38 charges, including uh, rejection both of the Trinity and infant baptism. Supported by quotations from Servetus' writings, Calvin personally appeared in court as the accuser and the chief witness of the prosecution, Calvin's reports of the trial matched Servetus's railings with such an unchristian epitaph as the dirty dog wiped his snout, the perfidious scamp soils each page with his impious writings and rantings. So Durant writes that Servetus asked to be beheaded rather than burned. And Calvin was inclined to support this plea, but the aged Pharaoh reproved him for such tolerance. The council voted that Servetus should be burned alive. The sentence was carried out on the next morning, October 17th, 1553. On the way to the burning, uh, Farrell importuned or asked Servetus to earn divine mercy by confessing the crime of heresy. According to Farrell, the condemned man replied, I'm not guilty. I have not merited death. And he besought God to pardon his accusers. He was fastened to a stake by iron chains. His last book was bound to his side. And when the flames reached his face, he shrieked with agony And after half an hour of burning, he died. These things happen in church history, and uh, Calvin's not alone in participating in it, but uh, happening in a place where so much doctrine is so widely respected, it causes me to say, I'm so glad I'm a Baptist. You say, well, why, Pastor Phelps? Baptists don't trace their origins to the Reformation. Some will, but I don't. Baptists say, we simply wanted to be separatists, away from the church, believing that baptism of believers, not infants, was the proper way. And Baptists have never, ever, ever persecuted any other belief group with a sword. In fact, the first place on the planet where the church was divided from the state is a wonderful state by the name of Rhode Island. And the founder of Rhode Island was none other than a great Baptist by the name of Roger Williams. If you ever want to read some wonderful things of church history, read The Bloody Tenet by Roger Williams and you'll find yourself saying, yes, yes, I like this guy. Because he was saying the church ought to receive tithes and offerings voluntarily and the state ought to receive taxes. Let's divide the two and live at peace among ourselves. And the first place on the planet that divided the church from the state successfully, Providence, Rhode Island, founded by a Baptist, Roger Williams makes me glad to be a Baptist. No swords in the hands of the Baptist. It doesn't mean you won't find some soiling under hands, but no swords in their hands. So the great influence of Calvin, of course, in Switzerland, in Scotland, under John Knox, the Scottish Presbyterians were born in America, you say in America, well, if you know the Bible that the Pilgrims brought over, they didn't carry the King James, which really makes sense because they weren't. At, all that excited about living under King James, they carried the Geneva Bible. And so the Geneva Bible would have been really, really embedded with a lot of Calvinistic thought. So the world has been impacted by John Calvin. Well, then we have this fellow, Jacobus Arminius, Jacobus Arminius, those who disagree with the doctrinal system called Calvinism are often branded Arminian. Arminius was a Dutch theologian who lived from 1560 to 1609. He was educated by benevolent benefactors. He went through some very challenging events in his life. His entire family was in the village of Oudewater, Holland, when Oudewater, Holland was... Uh, Taken by the Spaniard Roman Catholics, and every person there was killed. And Jacobus Arminius was out of town when it happened. So his entire family was killed when he wasn't there to stand with them. That includes his wife, children, and extended family members. His abilities were brought to the attention of the burgomasters in Amsterdam who sent him to study. He studied in Geneva and at that time defended Calvinistic theology. Arminius was installed as a teacher of theology at the University of Leiden in 1603. And by all accounts, he was a very sincere and gracious Christian. He did not want to go into the public arena with his considerations, but the positions of his school and the enthusiasm of his disciples kind of outed him. After his death, just the year after his death, in fact, in 1610, There was something happened in church history called the remonstrance. Forty-six Dutch ministers explained their protest to the Dutch church. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, they were countercultural, if you will. They were saying, we don't agree with all these things that Calvin has taught us, and so we offer a remonstrance. We're here to offer our carefully enunciated objections. Those objections would lead to something called the Synod of Dort. Great name! I always loved that name. Synod of Dort, 1618 to 1619. From November 1618 to May of 1619, this synod had over 150 meetings with over 200 ministers attending. This was a big thing. 200. Ministers from the Arminian side attending, 150 meetings, and of course, countless other. I said 200. It's probably more than 400 in total attendance in order to pound out the differences between Arminianism and Calvinism. And in the end, all of those who sided with Jacobus Arminius were put out of the ministry. They were defrocked. So the Calvinists won the day what was it that they were arguing over? Well, you've probably heard of the five points of Calvinism, but did you know that the five points of Calvinism actually came from Arminianism? The five points of Calvinism are the response of the Calvinist to the Arminians' arguments. So the followers of Jacobus Arminius, according to Alfred Hedren Newman, uh, a church historian, said, here are their points. The first statement of the Arminian, that God, by an eternal and immutable decree in Jesus Christ, His Son, before the world was founded, determined out of the fallen sinful human race to save in Christ for Christ's sake and through Christ those who through the grace of the Holy Spirit believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and shall persevere in this faith and obedience of faith through this grace unto the end. Now, how many are reading that carefully and saying, I think I'm okay with all that. But it's missing something. The Calvinists would say it's missing the sovereignty of God's predestined election. So therefore it, it can't hold. And on this perseverance statement, there's a strong bit of human endeavor that's going along, even strong enough for some to say, does that mean you can earn your salvation? The second statement, that Jesus Christ the savior of the world, Died for all men and for every man, so that he has obtained for them all by his death on the cross redemption. Yet no one enjoys this forgiveness of sin except the believer. So, well, what's wrong with that? Well, the Arminian who writes that is going to go to 1 John 2 and verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And the Calvinists are going to say, time out how can his death on the cross provide for the sins of the whole world and not simultaneously save the whole world? So the Calvinist says the atonement on the cross is limited to those who believe. The Arminian's going to fight back and say it's sufficient for all, but only applied to those who who believe. And even some Calvinists will say, I can go along with that. So again, we're not yet in the deep weeds. Come back in the next couple of weeks, we'll go there and discuss that more thoroughly. Number three, sinful man can of and by himself neither think, will, nor do anything that is truly good. That's total depravity. In my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For this grace of God is the beginning, continuance, and accomplishment of all good, as respects the mode of operation of grace It is not irresistible. Ooh, them's fighting words. Because the Calvinist, when God draws, he draws. But to the Arminian, the response is, no, didn't Agrippa say in Acts 26, almost thou persuadest me? So can God's grace be resisted. Then number five, they said, those who are incorporated into Christ by true faith have full power to strive against Satan if... They are ready for the conflict and desire his help and are not inactive. He keeps them from falling. Fighting words. And of course those fighting words brought out the five points of Calvinism. The answer to the remonstrance of the Arminian are these five points. Total depravity, total depravity, that we are all dead, Ephesians 2 and verse 1, in trespasses and sin. Unconditional election. Ephesians says we're chosen in him before the foundations of the earth. Limited atonement, or some would call it particular redemption. Didn't the angel say in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21 that he would come to save his people? How do you get the whole world into that? Irresistible grace. Irresistible grace. That we're born, according to John 1 and verse 12, of God. And the Father, John 6, draws us. How can you resist the omnipotent hand of God? And the final point, the perseverance of the saints. The perseverance of the saints. That through perseverance of faith, those who are saved will enter into heaven. Now, those will be our focuses over the next several weeks. You've gone through the heavy waters tonight. Historic theology is somewhat behind us, but we have an introduction. Why the big deal? Well, how many can still say, I've heard of Calvinism before, right? You need to have some ability to give answer to the hope that lies within you. And so I promise you, come back over the next few weeks and we'll walk through the he said, she said. Armenian said this, Calvinist said that. And let's see where we land. By the way, I didn't take sides tonight. So if anybody goes out of here saying, I think Pastor Phelps said he's a, uh, oh, shame on you, I never took sides at all. Okay, so come back and we'll go through those week by week and see what the Bible says. This podcast has been a ministry of Colonial Hills Baptist Church, a church home for all people. If what you've heard has been an encouragement to you, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. If you'd like to connect with Colonial or find more resources, you can find us online at colonialindie.org. You can also check us out on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope to see you next time on the Colonial Hills Podcast.